U.S. founding fathers imagined the Constitution as a solution to tyranny, but they were less interested in efficiency than in preventing the consolidation of power. Andrew Fiala, a professor of philosophy and director of the Ethics Center at California State University, Fresno, explores how that's played out over the course of U.S. history in his latest book, Tyranny, From Plato to Trump, Fools, Sycophants, and Citizens. It's published by Roman and Littlefield and brings Professor Fiala to our show now. Welcome. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Hasn't Sanford Levinson, a constitutional scholar, said, I'm quoting, the U.S. Constitution is by far measure the most undemocratic among our 51 uh, constitutions, including our one federal and 50 state documents? In what way? (laughs) Yeah, no, this is true. Um, And it's I think it's intended that way. It's set up that way. Uh, again, as you said right at the introduction, I think uh, the the framers had in mind setting up a system that would prevent tyrants from consolidating power. And so one way you do that is create all these impediments and dysfunctions in the system. And they, a number of them were slave owners. So uh, the total democracy was not really on their minds. Uh, you're exactly right, Leonard. <laughs> um, yeah, I talk about this in the book. Um, well, that, you know, that's, the, well, I'm going to try to bring up stuff that's in your book, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that, this is, you know, kind of, this is, I mean, we've been dealing with this in the last few years, thinking about our, our history of racism and slavery in the U.S., and that's, a, that's a, a huge flaw in the original system. But the good news is it was fixed over time. And Part of, one of the, part of the argument I make is that we need to continue to work to fix and improve this system. Now, our country was founded as an escape from British tyranny, and although the Declaration of Independence stated that King George III was a tyrant, uh, not all the signatories even agreed to that. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. There was, there was a, 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 even at that time in those days, that word tyranny was kind of polarizing and politically loaded. And so there was a disagreement between, for example, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson in terms of how they understood King George. And, you know, there's this really interesting story later on when, as they're, as they're trying to reestablish relations with um, the British, and, you know, they, they had to, to figure out how to normalize things at the time. And, and there was some bad blood, right? So the American revolutionaries um, uh, had this tendency to, to throw this word tyranny at the British and at King George himself, um, but it was open for debate. And, you know, it's, I mean, to, to make a parallel, we're, we're kind of going through the same thing right now and trying to evaluate Putin, right? Like how, right. how does the word tyrant and tyranny, how does it apply in these cases, realizing that there's a long history of thinking about that term and there's consequences if we use the word tyranny. Especially in Russian history, but what about ours? Uh, you say you you say we'll be disappointed if we think the government is supposed to respond to the will of the majority. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think it's I think it's set up to be slow and dysfunctional. Um, now, again, is that what exactly what the framers had in mind? Maybe. Uh, but the result has been that. And, you know, part of the, my book, the, the focus on Trump, um, what we saw, like the good news story about the Trump years is that he was not able to consolidate power. And one of the reasons uh, behind that is the fact that that system is, is set up with this kind of dysfunction in it. Now, that means it's you not mean the, the system which right? allows for small states to have uh, equal say in many things with large states, for example, things like that. 
Yeah, no, exactly. So, you know, here, here I am in, in California and we have two senators mm-hmm. and we have, I don't know, 30 to 40 million people. And the state of Wyoming has, you know, two senators and less than a million people. And there, there's a kind of undemocratic uh, aspect to the Senate. And there's a few other systematic problems, including, you know, how that translates into the electoral college process. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it is undemocratic in a sense, if we're looking for equal representation across the board. Um, and, you know, actually there's a debate about, you know, what should we call this system? Is it, do we live in a democracy or is it a republic, um, a constitutional republic? You know, even the terminology itself is, is up for grabs. Um, but, you know, as I argue, and you quoted Levinson at the beginning, um, you know, and I'm not, cause I'm not the only one making this argument. Um, it's not as uh, democratically representative as it might be. But, and, and I'm kind of worried about that as many Americans are, especially as we're looking at issues with um, access to voting and voting rights and so on. But one virtue of that kind of system is that it does prevent a tyrannical personality from consolidating power and mobilizing um, the forces of government on his behalf. And it's almost always a he in the history of tyranny. Um, so, you know, again, I think probably it would be nice if it were more democratic, but let's be careful about we, what we wish for, right? So, You mean it's protecting, yeah, us, go ahead. it's protecting us against demagogues to some degree? Yeah, I think that's, that's part of the, the story there. That, um, you know, and, we, and we saw this, uh, I mean, the one big piece of good news in the last year was that uh, Trump uh, left power, right? And so that's partly the result of the separation of powers and the way that that transfer of power was supposed to happen back on January 6th. Um, and even the fact that the, uh, you know, the rioters or insurrectionists or whatever we want to call them, they were unable to disrupt that process. That's a, that's a good sign in, in terms of the health of this system. Again, whether we want to call it democratic, uh, you know, a constitutional republic or what have you, but it worked in that regard. Well, still, doesn't history teach us that there are no saviors, that when power is concentrated, corruption is sure to follow? <laughs> yes, that, I think that's true. I think, um, you know, the founders knew that. Um, and, you know, they got that from Montesquieu and other other thinkers in the history of political philosophy. Um, this worry about concentrated power is is deep-seated, and I think right. Um, you know, the, the history of tyranny is a history of hubris and pride and arrogance and violence where people try to consolidate power for their own self-interest. And in the enlightenment, you know, in the, in the modern world, in the American system, we, I think we mostly agree that that's a bad idea. Although there are, you know, backsliders, right? So not everybody agrees, but mm-hmm. for the most part, our tradition um, shows us that that's a good idea to prevent tyrants from consolidating power. Well, uh, I know this isn't in your book, but have you looked at the Russian constitution? Does it contain more safeguards? You know, I, I wish I knew more about the Russian constitution, but I we certainly have seen that Putin um, represses dissent, right? So if you've seen this news in the last couple of weeks about anti-war protesters who've been rounded up in the thousands and and they just passed a law that said that if you use the word war yeah. or invasion, you can go to jail. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, see, that's not that's not going to happen here because not only of the system, but also the 
amendments to the Constitution that guarantee freedom of speech and freedom of the press and so on. I mean, we have this this system that has uh, a deep commitment to dissent, to protest. Um, and I don't think you see that in the Russian system. And probably, his, I mean, again, like I'm not an expert on the current constitution in Russia, but we know that the history of Russia from the czars on through the Soviet era, you know, they, th- those, those liberties did not exist there, but, um, nor was there a separation of power. But we have freedom of speech, and yet uh, we're seeing laws being passed right now that prevent people from even using the word gay or talking about uh, things that happened throughout the history of the United States. Yeah, yeah. No. So it it turns out, uh, as you're suggesting, that that people propose things that seem to be in violation of this system, but there are self-correctives even within the system. Right. So we'll see what happens with that Florida law. Obviously, also it's been passed and the governor's got to sign it. So then, you know, will there be protests that then go outside of Florida to the Supreme Court? And how will that play out? And Again, that's part of the good news of our system is that there are legal ways, structural ways to respond to these kind of things. What changes to the Constitution might strengthen and bolster democratic features and improve its structural safeguards against tyranny? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, all the discussion we've been having in the last six months to a year about voting rights and um, you know, I'm, like many other people, I'm, I'm worried about restrictions on access to the ballot. Um, so I think we need to keep thinking and keep working about on that. Also, you know, one of the things I've, I'm interested in is, um, you know, voting rights for people in Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico. I mean, there, there are some some things that are on the table, whether they can ever practically happen. I don't know. But, um, you know, the, the idea that that this system of 50 states with this particular constitution it's not fixed in stone, right? It's it's up for amendment if we ever had the political will and some leadership on that. Um, those are a couple ideas. Well, didn't the ancient Greeks, Plato and Sophocles, for example, warn that tragedy unfolds in the absence of reason and, and they propose wisdom and virtue as a cure? But hasn't history shown that's easier said than done? <laughs> Yeah, what a what a good question, Leonard. So um, <laughs> uh, history's long, right? And our memories are short. So um, uh, one of the things, you know, one of my my approaches, I'm a, I'm a philosopher, I'm a scholar of the humanities, the history of the humanities. You know, when we look at the 2,500 year or 3,000 year history of civilization, it turns out that nothing stays the same. And here we are. What are we like? 250 years into the American experiment. Um, that's, I mean, this is not going to last forever. The current state of affairs, things happen. History works that way. Um, and you know, one of the things you see, and the Greeks knew this, uh, one of the things you see is that, that reason doesn't always triumph, right? There are, are terrible moments of violence and irrationality. Um, and the, you know, the Greeks warned against that. The, the, the solution they propose, and I agree, is education, virtue, um, self-reflection, self-examination, you know, that, that solution's a perennial one, but every generation needs to relearn it. You know, it's like, um, we're not born wise. <laughs> that takes a lot of effort, and each generation needs to work through the process. Uh, the ancient Greeks gave us some of the language to discuss these things, tyrant, sycophant, and, and moron, uh, what you call the tragic trio, and you contend that 
most of us are morons, at least some of the time. Should I yes. be offended? <laughs> you know, that, that word, uh, I took that word, it's like a transliteration from this Greek word moros, which shows up in um, Sophocles, it shows up in the, the Greek tragedies. Plato uses the word. In Greek, that word moros uh, means blind, um, stupid in the sense of like willingly blind, unwilling to look, unwilling to see, uh, resistant to enlightenment. And so, like you, as you suggested, I do say this in the book, that much of the time, many of us are morons in that sense. I know that's a loaded term, you know, I, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm a little cheeky in, in using that term, but the point is this, is that um, human beings, you know, we're not enlightened beings all the time. In fact, many of us prefer most of the time to simply be entertained, we're interested in amusement, uh, we're lazy, we like to close our eyes to difficult things. Um, enlightenment's difficult and, and it, it takes effort. And I, I say this, even, you know, I'm a philosophy professor, but there's sometimes when I just want to, you know, pull down the drapes and turn on Netflix and I don't want to think anymore. <laughs> so, you know, I, that's, that's a common human failing. Well, and, join the human race. Yeah. 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 No, and the real, the danger is, you know, when that tendency, the, the moronic tendency, the tendency to foolishness, when that predominates, then the tyrant can sneak in and take advantage of us. So we tend to turn a blind eye when something doesn't coincide with our beliefs or prejudices? Yeah, we do this all the time, right? This is, um, uh, part, part of this is also uh, complicity, right? Where, uh, and a kind of sneaking complicity where we sort of know that something's amiss. We sort of see that something's wrong and it's, it's just too much effort to, to think about it, to do anything to resolve it. Um, this, you know, Martin Luther King pointed this out, you know, that, you know, he called it sort of like the, the complicity or the willful blindness of white people who benefited from racism, right? So it was hard in the, in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. It was hard to look at these things. It still is. And there's some people who don't want to be bothered. That's part of our moronic tendency. That's part of this, this um, willful stupidity, vicious ignorance, you might call it. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Professor Andrew Fiala. Uh, his latest book is Tyranny from Plato to Trump, Fools, Sycophants, and Citizens, and it is published by uh, Roman and Littlefield. So let's talk about the word sycophant. We've talked about tyrant and, uh, and moron. Um, mm -hmm. What's the what's the source of that word? Yeah, you know that's a Greek word. Also, um, the there, it's a long, complicated story. Our, when we use that word today, it doesn't quite mean the same thing that it meant to the ancient Greeks. Um, the Greeks that the root of that word has to do with revealing something shameful. There's even a sense that it may be kind of obscene that the thing that is revealed is is shameful. A fig, the, the part of that translation is the, literally the word fig, um, revealing a fig. So the ancient uh, sycophants, they would reveal secrets, reveal information, and use that to leverage power, right? So it's kind of a way, to, uh, kind of a way to, I don't know, get kickbacks and bribes and even um, court cases would happen as a result of this. Well, this word has kind of transformed itself over the last couple thousand years. And what, you know, what we mean by this is something like, 
a brown noser, a kiss up, a flatterer, right? All these synonyms. They're even worse, <laughs> obscene kind of synonyms for this. Um, and what, what these folks do or, or who they are, part of the tragic trio is these are the people that suck up to the tyrant and are kind of like the go-between between the tyrant and the mob. And these, these folks, the thing about the, the sycophants is they kind of know better, right? They know what they're doing is corrupt and complicit, but they're willing to kind of flow where the power is. Um, and as I say in the book, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes the tyrant escapes, right? He, he, he flees, uh, flees to an island somewhere and the sycophants are left behind and they often are left holding the bag and they get in trouble. Um, you know, and, and there, I mean, if you want to, we could talk about some of the folks in the Trump orbit and think yeah. about. Well, sure. Yeah. But it is interesting that uh, most of them probably won't accept being called a sycophant. But in the fall of 2020, Michael Cohn, the, the former Trump lawyer, said in, in an interview, let's call me what I was. I was a sycophant. Yeah. Yeah. No, he he, he admitted it. And look, look what happened to him. Right. So he, you know, at one point he got he a lot of show, a lot of time on MSNBC. <laughs> yeah, of course, after a, a conviction. Um, yeah, no, I mean, sometimes people land on their feet, right? That's that's true. Um, and sometimes people reform themselves, true, too, right? So all of this, by the way, I don't want to suggest that people are irredeemably broken, right? So even the, the sycophant can wake up. That's possible. And the, the, the mob, the masses can wake up, too. Um, but, you know, he, I mean, Cohen, for example, right? You know, at one point he said he's willing to take a bullet for Trump or mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. Um, and why would he say that? Well, that's where the power is, right? He's, he's working for one of the richest people in the country and who then becomes president. And um, it's natural for human beings to do this, right? When, when, there's, when the door opens to power, people walk through it. You know, we're opportunistic in that way. Um, and sometimes we really sell our souls out in that pursuit. Well, sometimes um, it's a slippery slope, isn't it? You uh, wind up working with somebody and, uh, and little by little, you just get sucked into what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, and I, I, I would I assume that's what happens too. with a lawyer. A lawyer doesn't come to a client and say, okay, I'll do any corrupt thing you suggest. Yeah, no, no. So the, that, that slippery slope as you're, as you're calling it, you know, it's, it's incremental, right? First, you make one exception, and then you cover something up. And next thing you know, you find yourself in a whole web of lies. Um, but this happens, you know, in business, this happens in family life, right? We do, we, we, we make exceptions for people that um, are powerful in our organizations. We make exceptions for people we love. And love is can be corrupted in that way, you know, so um, it's again, it's a common human failing, like, Michael Cohen, I mean, not to single him out, but, uh, you know, he's 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 like a, a symptom of a disease. Right. So this disease is is in the human soul, this tendency to sell yourself out for those in power and those you love. One notable feature of sycophants is what you call their contortionism. And you give the example of Mitch McConnell, who condemned Trump's January 6th behavior and then was complicit in delaying the Senate's impeachment vote until after Trump was out of office. Yeah, no, the, you know, this um, McConnell, Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, there's a bunch of names that we could talk about. How um, were they able to justify those conflicting positions for both themselves and their various constituencies? You, you know, <laughs> Leonard, you wonder when they look in the mirror at the end of the day, what do they see? You know, you, you really you, you wonder about these folks. Um, some of it may be, you know, just like 
crass political machination, right? They're like, what's in the interest of our party and so on. But also, you know, it's, again, it's this natural tendency to sort of think that the power structure uh, constrains your, your behavior and your thought, right? Which is not true, right? We, we have some autonomy in this. I mean, people can, can say the emperor has no clothes on, right? I mean, we all have the power to, to speak truth, um, but it becomes difficult. And I, you know, I, I sometimes am, am worried about politicians. Now, I know, you know not every politician is corrupt, but something happens in the you know, working towards political power where you find yourself making exceptions and accommodating yourself to things. And the next thing you know, there you are, right? The, the Trump is being impeached and, and you don't vote to convict um, or, or what have you, you know? So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a problem. McCon- you know, the issue with McConnell and some of these other folks is they were anti-Trump at one point. Trump bullied them, right? I mean, Ted Cruz is a great example. You know, his Trump, you know, belittled him and his wife. Um, and next thing you know, mm-hmm. Cruz is on the Trump bandwagon. So that's, that's kind of how it works in the history of the sycophant. Well, he saw it as politically expedient, but there are some people who are unquestioning followers. Would we call them sycophants or are they uh, something deeper? Yeah. I, you know, my point about the sycophant is that they ought to know better, right? We, these are not stupid people. You're these talking about not, one third of America's population or more. Yeah, well, so the you know there, there's the other folks in this matrix, which are the people who um, who are in a sense unthinking, who are uneducated, who, who I mean, in, in a way, we could kind of forgive them because they don't know any better. But the sycophant, we we just want to think that that those folks know better, and so something is going on in in their souls, in their hearts, in their minds, where they they they've become complicit, like, you, you know, that, that word, they've contorted themselves or they're opportunistic and, um, and they're good at it, right? So they, you know, the lies pile up and the justifications pile up on justifications. Um, and the next thing you know, you have this, this whole web of information that's false, that's based on a lie. Um, and then you see then the folks at the bottom end, the, the masses, it's difficult for them to, for us right? Because I'm one of them. I'm one of the masses. It's difficult for us to sort the truth out because the sycophants have already muddied the water to such an extent. To what extent do you believe literature helps us make a sense of the world and perhaps uh, these uh, challenging times? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a professor of the humanities. Uh, I used to teach big sections of intro to humanities, and I think it's I think it's good for Americans to study literature and think about, you know, the history of the tradition. Um, what we, one of the things you learn, I hope, <laughs> is that uh, we are not exceptional, right? Our, our experience, the experience of being human, people have been dealing with us, <laughs> with humanity for thousands of years. And uh, there's a tendency to think that our present moment is somehow unique and special. And it's just not true, right? In fact, can um, I quote you? Yeah. You write, if the Trump era looks like a Greek tragedy or Shakespearean drama or biblical prophetic narrative, that's because history is replete with common character types and familiar plot lines. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, th- see this? And that helps to know that, I think. Um, 
you know, the, these common plot lines, you can sort of see, and this is, you know, it's psychological, it's sociological, it's political. Um, we fall into these patterns of behavior. And when we know that and can see that, then we can take action and resist or correct it, right? Um, the, the, the kind of unthinking pattern is, well, we just, we just do it because that's what we do and we don't reflect on who we are, what we are. And literature and philosophy provide that mirror, right? Give us the opportunity to think about what we do well and what we do bad. And when we see these things that are bad or evil or negative, let's fix them. Um, and the pattern, the solution patterns are also common, right? The, the part of the solutions to this stuff goes all the way back to the Greeks and Plato and Aristotle and so on. So since the problems posed by Trump and the January 6th insurrection are new, uh, there, aren't there solutions and models from the past that can help us to work through them? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, I mean, one thing is, uh, I, I point this out in the book, is that the framers of the Constitution were great students of history. They read Greek philosophy and Greek tragedy. They understood that this perennial challenge, the, the challenge of tyranny, they, they understood that it needed an institutional fix. Um, not just a spiritual fix, because there's that fix too, right? Let's, let's fix our souls. But part of the solution is to structure the system in order to prevent the tyrant from consolidating power. And so, the, you know, there's a great lesson in this, that the framers studied history and came up with this system that's supposed to be a remedy, that's why we should study the framers, right? We need, we need to continue to learn from history and understand, you know, what the solution is all about, frankly, and without, without losing hope, too, because the other side of this, a lack of historical understanding, you can sort of feel like the present crisis is the end of everything. Um, and that's not true either, right? So even when, you know, civilizations fall, and they do, um, life moves on. And so, you know, there's a tendency towards hopelessness in some of this. And I think literature helps solve that, too. Well, you write that tyranny is not only a political problem, it's also a moral and spiritual one. So how do we explain that throughout history, so many religious leaders, and that includes some people today, have supported what we might think of as tyrannical behavior? Yeah, that's an interesting angle on this. Um, in theory, <laughs> so are, are morals and morals uh, flexible? Yeah. Well, no, <laughs> they shouldn't be. But um, in theory, you know, religion should should create a break or a check on tyranny. But there is uh, an open question about the relationship between religious and political power, right? Um, and in some cases, those are tightly woven together. Uh, one of the things I, I talk about in the book is that the, the tyrant often has a God problem. The tyrant wants to be God, wants to have God-like power. And as I argue, that's a misunderstanding of God. <laughs> God's, uh, you know, again, assuming certain things about God in the, the Western tradition, God is not a tyrant, at least in our tradition, right? God is supposed to be just and wise, not merely a dominator, right? Not merely about power, but also about goodness, not about greatness, but about goodness. And the, the tyrannical personality kind of misunderstands that. So one corrective is for religious voices to point out that, you know, the, the, the person that wants power in this world has misunderstood something about morality, about truth, and even about the divine. 
But often religious leaders throughout history have been complicit in tyrannies. Sure. Yeah. And again, this is uh, a, the common human failing. By, by, notice, by the way, one could be a religious leader and and be a real jerk, <laughs> right? There's no there's no um, direct line between being a prophet, a priest, and so on, and actually not being uh, a moral failure. And there are examples of that. Um, all, you know, we can go back to the Greeks again, right? That um, in uh, Plato's time, religious power was often tightly connected to political power, and one of the reasons Plato and the philosophers were very interested in questions of religion and morality was to point out that religious power needs to be corrected and improved by moral critique and by philosophical critique. Um, as you know, that's, again, that's true throughout the throughout the history of our our, our tradition. Um, when the church goes wrong, then the critic has to stand up. Martin Luther has to nail his theses to the door, you know, um, and the argument has to has to be made. Again, someone needs to do that. The enlightener, the, the, the wise person who wants to stand up and someone like Martin Luther and say, hey, wait a minute. Uh, the church is corrupt, sold itself out to political power. But you also compare Trump to Oedipus Rex. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you remember the story of Oedipus. Well, I m remember the sexual aspect, but <laughs> yeah, no, he, you know, Oedipus is um, the tyrant king of Thebes who comes to power based on um, the sexual part, as as most people are aware. But when he's in power, there's a plague in Thebes, and the part of the, you know, one of the the parts of the action in Oedipus. The Tyrant, which is one the original title, Oedipus Tyrannos, Oedipus the Tyrant. Part of the action has to do with this question of what's going on. Why is there a plague? So the metaphor, the analogy is really interesting, right? So Oedipus the Tyrant is the tyrant king during a plague, and then Trump is in power in the United States during the pandemic, a plague. Um, mm. And well, part of the story in Sophocles is that Oedipus's hubris, his arrogance, his pride brings the plague about and also fails to provide a solution to the plague. So the analogy, you know, the, what I saw during our pandemic years with Trump in power is that his, Trump's hubris also caused part of the problem. I don't want to say he caused the plague, but, you know, this the, a failure to respond adequately and thinking that it was all about him, right? Every, you know, that somehow the, the Democrats, Anthony Fauci, I don't know, was out to get Trump when we're fighting a virus, you know, that, that made no sense. But from the standpoint of Oedipus, it makes a lot of sense, right? That the, the tyrannical personality thinks that everything is about them, even a pandemic, which again, then that prevents us from finding solutions. It prevents us from listening to science. It politicizes the whole thing and so on. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Word you heard is true. 
nothing you can say There may be nothing you can do I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Andrew Fiala. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $75 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Tyranny from Plato to Trump, Full Sycophants and Citizens. All you have to do is go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show and We'll be happy to send you a copy, but don't forget to make that $75 donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at large, and we thank you very much. And let's get back to Andrew Fiala, who is a professor of philosophy and director of the Ethics Center at at California State University in Fresno, published five books on ethics and political philosophy, including one about just wars that I found fascinating. But the one we are discussing today is his latest, Tyranny from Plato to Trump, Fools, Sycophants, and Citizens from Roman uh, Roman and Littlefield. So let's get back to Donald Trump, okay? Mm-hmm. When he became a president for the presidency, some people warned that he was a tyrant in waiting. What led them to, to claim that, as opposed to his supporters who, who see him as a hero? Yeah, you know, he, I, uh, obviously, incredibly polarizing person, right? So there, there's just diametrically opposed um, estimations of Trump, um, which is fascinating. But let's come back to that if, if at some point. Um, why, why do people? Why, what is the polar, polarization problem? But mm. the the claim that Trump is a tyrant um, comes from from my standpoint is is makes sense if we look at his focus on greatness. On, I mean, that word greatness, that's a kind of tyrannical word. It's about external value. And one of the things I did in writing the book is I, I, I read a bunch of stuff that Trump had wrote or had written for him, The Art of the Deal, some of his other books, his campaign books. I looked, you have a whole appendix devoted to that. Yeah, yeah, no. And, and what I discovered is that Trump lacks a moral vocabulary. He is just inarticulate when it comes to morality. And I see this as a sign of the tyrannical problem. When you know I, you can do a content analysis of his writings and of his Twitter feed, I looked for words like morality, ethics, value, virtue. He does not use this language at all. But some of the tyrants of the past, Attila the Hun, Nero, Hitler, Stalin, um, they were pretty terrible people. Does Trump qualify? At times he comes across as more of a bumbler <laughs> not not a a real tyrant, but a would be tyrant. Yes, yes. No, this is what I argue in the book. Ultimately, that he is a, a would be tyrant. Um, in part because he, I mean, the main main point there is he was not able to consolidate power. Again, partly that's the virtue of our system. Um, it, it nonetheless, I think you know if imagine Trump rising in a different situation, right, with a different constitutional structure. He is just not interested in constraints on power. He views everything as um, focused on him, right? Kind of narcissism, pride, whatever, however you want to describe this. Um, I understand the, the claim, you know, that he's kind of a bumbler, but um, bumblers can do terrible things <laughs> if they're not constrained by morality and if they're not um, constrained by a, a system of law that prevents them from doing those terrible things. And, he, you know, really this part of the the the... Inter- an interesting frame on this is the idea of making America great again 
is not anything about making America moral again. It's not about you know returning America to virtue or anything like that. It's literally focused on a purely external measure of power. And I think you see that in the Trump brand, right? It's, it's the glitz and the gold and the big names put on the sides of buildings and so on. Um, that's, the, that's Trump's interest is this kind of external measure. It's about this, you know, the amount of your wealth, the size of your bank account and so on. That is out of the tyrant's playbook, right? This is, this is you know, go all the way back, for example, to Nero, right? Nero, the, the Roman tyrant emperor, he won all these awards. Like, you know, he won theater awards and Olympic awards and so on. All the, the competitions that Nero engaged in were rigged, right? It was all set up for him to win. Nonetheless, he was happy to win, happy to brag about the fact that he won all these awards. Purely external, not connected to real value, not connected to truth. Uh, have you ever stayed at a Trump hotel? Unfortunately, I had to at one point, and the outside was very appealing, but the room was terrible. Uh, <laughs> and when I had an opportunity—this is way before he ran for president—when I had an opportunity to stay there again, I asked if I could go somewhere else. But getting back to tyrants, is there an objective definition to tyrant to which all reasonable people could be expected to agree, or is tyranny ultimately in the eye of the beholder? Yeah, this is part of the problem, is that the word is used as, you know, just a political trump card, to use that phrase. Um, you know, the, you saw this. Uh, some people said that pandemic restrictions were tyrannical. Um, when John Wilkes Booth assassinated Abraham Lincoln. He called Lincoln a tyrant. He said, you know, he quoted the murder of Julius Caesar. Um, people are now claiming Putin's a tyrant. Folks claim Trump is a tyrant. This, this word, you know, Ted Cruz somewhere claimed that Obama was a tyrant. So this word is, is used all over the place, really in an unsystematic way, right? It's just now, you know, kind of our common vocabulary, tyrant just means someone we don't like. So in a sense, it is in the eye of the beholder. It's a politicized word. One of the the focus is in my book is to try to fix that, right? To try to, this is what philosophers do, right? Try to figure out what is a, an objective, useful definition of tyranny. And so what I've argued is that, you know, the, the like a real good definition of a tyrant is a person who rules, uh, who tries to rule out of hubris and pride, narcissism with violence in the background. And the goal is to have a kind of unlimited power that is, exempt from the rule of law, exempt from moral standards. Now, you can see people could take that and then say, well, Obama did it, Biden does it, blah, blah, blah. But then, you know, we want to evaluate in reality, you know, what are the person's motivations? So are they fueled by pride and, and arrogance? Um, how much power do they actually have? Do they violate the rule of law? And so on. Again, I think we need that objective definition um, and of course, philo you know, it's a philosophical hope <laughs> that we'd be more careful with our language, but I know we're not, right? The, the word's still going to be used in this way, this pejorative way, just to insult people you don't like. I know that's going to continue to happen. Well, James Madison argued that ambition must be made to counteract ambition, uh, mm -hmm. and he defined tyranny as the accumulation of all powers in the same hands. Did the system of checks and balances work to prevent Donald Trump from consolidating power? Yeah, I think I think that's the good news story out of um, 2020, 2021, was, was that um, the system did work to prevent because, that. Because officials power. refused to comply with his effort to overturn the election. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and I courts? mean, the very fact that, that we had an election, right? Our system is set up to transfer power every four years. Well, it goes on. The courts have confirmed the integrity of the election. Members of mm -hmm. Congress and Vice President Mike Pence certified the election. And uh, some of the January 6th insurrectionists have been arrested and put on trial. Yes, I think that's all really good news. And um, I think, you know, while we we should still be um, worried about the health of our, our, our country, we can take away from that episode that those systems are in place that prevent someone like Trump from consolidating power. I have to admit, I was a little bit nervous, right? The, the end of 2020 and spilling over into 2021, like, you're sort of like, well, what's going to happen? Um, you remember at the time, there were even people suggesting that, you know, maybe Trump would, I don't know, get the military to do something. And mm -hmm. there was talk about uh, somehow collecting voting machine. I mean, all this, this weird stuff. The good news is none of that happened. And I think another part of the good news is that, um, you know, civil servants, you know, the, the county clerk's office, the registrars of voter, those those folks um, mostly did the right thing. Right. So it, like it, it's it's not that we um, that we need some, you know, savior to come in and save us. We're going to save ourselves. And that has to do with people with integrity and professional ethics and morality doing the right thing up and down the chain of command. Right. It's the cops who defended the Capitol on January 6th. It's the state's attorneys who are pursuing them, you know, all, all of all of these people who sort of unheralded, right? We don't notice them. These are actually good people who help to serve the, the function of our system. But partisan standoffs, propaganda and riots have become uh, quite common. And polls show that 40 percent of Americans believe that the 2020 election was illegitimate. Uh, and a majority of us fear the future will bring more political violence. Yeah, no. Uh, well, what's going to happen in 2024 if Trump runs again? Right. That's a that's a serious concern. Well, if he can get uh, the dead Kennedy to run as his vice presidential candidate, <laughs> that, that might be a, a good way, a good uh, road to success. Apparently, people are still hoping that that's going to happen. Right. That somehow <laughs> uh, Kennedy will come back. Uh, I don't know. There, there's there's some stuff that's way off the deep end. But the part of the problem is um even back to this word tyranny, we're so polarized in our country. And, you know, this accusation of tyrant that gets thrown back and forth, it's, it's, it prevents critical thinking and it prevents thoughtful, civil discourse. We've really, we've really lost that in our country. Not that we've always had it, by the way. So think, you know, we had a civil war and we had um, the worst for, form of tyranny in place under the Constitution, namely slavery, right? The system has not always been pure. Jim Crow is pretty bad, too. Yeah, right on, right on. So, and, you know, there have been riots in the streets, right? So whatever we saw after George Floyd and so on, I mean, this, this in a sense, it's not new, this polarization, um, this politicization, our lack of civility. But there then, you know, there, the, what I think what is new is the fast-paced media environment, um, the spread of fake news and disinformation, and our inability to sort that out. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Andrew Fiala, professor of philosophy and director of the Ethics Center of California State University in Fresno, author of a number of books. The one we are discussing today 
is his latest, Tyranny from Plato to Trump, Fool, Sycophants, and Citizens from Roman and Littlefield. You suggest that empirical analysis reveals that most Democratic citizens are uninterested in politics, poorly informed, and unwilling or unable to convey coherent policy preferences. So uh, are you saying that we really don't know or care enough to vote rationally? This is a problem. So there is there are, are sets of data that show this, that, that voters are not rational decision makers. Um, that's a big problem. So, uh, of course, we need to fix it. <laughs> so part of fixing it is admitting it, right? We need to admit we have this problem of foolishness or whatever you want to call it. Um, part of the evidence, you think about this, right? When uh, if you if you look down the ballot on any on any you know voter card or ballot, whatever, you most people have no idea who the person is running for dog catcher or whatever it is we vote on. And how does it happen? People just pick a name they like. Um, advertising works that way, right? If you just well, they vote get, for a party, yeah, or they vote for a party, or whatever the name is familiar to them. The incumbent often wins because the incumbent's name is familiar. Um, this doesn't indicate rational voting behavior, right? So somehow the solution has to be better education about this, right? So K twelve, higher ed, adult education, ongoing education that's nonpartisan. <laughs> that that would be a dream. Um, people, people need to be educated about the choices they're making, including about the system they're choosing within, right? So, you know, I've, I've been involved in a lot of projects on civic education in Central California, and we, we need more and better civic education. If you don't mind me adding this, the teachers in, in K-12 education are working on this, but they're now afraid, right? Because this has already become a kind of political football, all this pushback against teachers about uh, critical race theory and so on. Um, if we're going to, one, one solution, we're going to fix our, our system and make it better. We have to defend the teachers and we have to provide them with the resources and um, the knowledge and information so that they can educate our citizens, right? I mean, the, the next gen generation is going to come up and vote. If we want this world to be better, we need to make sure that generation knows what they're doing when they vote. Well, it's sometimes shocking to see some of the people who have been elected to Congress. I'm not going to go through a bunch of names, but uh, some of them are uh, have just said some of the most awful things yeah. uh, and pr promoted awful things. So h how does that work? And, and sometimes they're even reelected. Yeah, it's it's um, it can be a cause for despair. Right. When you look at some of the folks, um, and some of the things they say. But again, the good news, if we're going to fix that, uh, vote them out of office, right? So in our system, they're, you know, they will stand for re-election eventually, and maybe there will be change. This kind of change is very tedious. It's slow and it's incremental. I've, my, my, my sons are in their 20s, and I've often had this conversation with them. They're like, Dad, the stuff that I talk about, they're like, that's not a revolution. That's, you know, it just takes too long. And um, you know, I always warn young people, including my students, that you got to be careful if you wish for a revolution, because <laughs> there's no telling what will happen. You know, um, the, the, the work of, of everyday um, self-examination, the work of enlightenment, the work of political change, that's, that's slow, a slow slog. And there's always going to be backsliding. Again, history shows us this, right? Um, but 
if there's any hope in all of this, it's that the harder we work and the more we focus on this, the better things will get. Never perfect, right? Because this is this is a human world. It's not a perfect world, but we can we can fix things here and there. Um, and I think back to your your worry about some folks. Let's call them sycophants or whatever we want to call them. People in office that that seem off the deep end. Well. The fact that we know about them helps, right? The fact that we can criticize them publicly because of the First Amendment, that helps. The fact that we can uh, vote them out of office, and again, assuming that voters know what they're voting about through education, that can be a solution. Well, they often cause gridlock. And although many consider the gridlock in our government today as disservice to democracy, don't others uh, applaud it as a defense against would-be tyrants? Yeah, that's a really good point that um, the, you know, kind of minority rule that happens when the Senate can veto something, you know, I mean, this, this, this kind of gridlock dysfunction sometimes is described as a prevention against tyranny. I think that's important. We want to, we want to keep that in mind um, because the, you know, we see in other parts of the world and other parts of history, Putin's Russia is a great example, right? When, the tyrant walks into the parliament and says, we're going to do this. And 15 minutes later, everyone votes yes. Right. These kind of, you know, state staged elections, especially under Stalinism, you know, the kind of example where everyone, you know, 99 percent uh, approval all the time. That's a huge problem. That's that that again, I think the founders had that in mind as one of the things they wanted to prevent. Um, of course, it, it it makes it hard to get anything done. And so there's a real tension here between efficiency and prevention of, um, of the worst case scenario. But didn't Arthur Schlesinger argue that the American system has gradually evolved in the direction of what's called the imperial presidency? Yeah, that's so this is an issue that, um, uh, I don't know, the last 50 to 100 years or so, um, Congress has kind of given up some of its power, right? Um, variety of ways that this happens. One obvious example has to do with uh, war resolutions, right? It used to be the Constitution requires that Congress declare war, but now they do these kind of resolutions that allow the president to kind of put American forces wherever. This is kind of what what happened with Afghanistan and so on. Um, I think the, the Congress ought to, to do what it can do to try to take back power in a sense. Um, but, you know, the counter argument is that in a world of crises and emergencies, the executive branch needs to be empowered to take action quickly, right? So again, you get the debate between efficiency versus preventing consolidation of power. Andrew Fiala is a professor of ethics, political philosophy, the philosophy of religion and nonviolence and pacifism, and director of the Center for Ethics at California State University in Fresno, and the author of, is this your sixth book? Something like that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Something in there. <laughs> and this one, the one that we've been discussing, is Tyranny from Plato to Trump, Fools, Sycophants, and Citizens, and it is published by Roman and Littlefield. And it has been my great pleasure to have you on our show today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Leonard. I appreciate the, the conversation. Great questions. Thank you very much. And that brings us to the end of our show. 
My great thanks to my audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Keziah Glow, the executive producer of Leonard Lopit at Large, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews and would like to hear more of, uh, also, uh, well, you can hear them uh, streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by giving us a call at 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and the number 2WBAI.org. We hope you'll do it right now. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, Anyone who makes a contribution of $75 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing, Tyranny from Plato to Trump, Full Sycophants and Citizens by Andrew Fiala. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And during this Women's History Month, we're offering the 8-gigabyte Women's History Collection and a WBAI tote bag to everyone who signs up to become a WBAI buddy for $15 a month or more. You can... um, however much you're comfortable with, and do it for as long as you want. And uh, we we will appreciate it because it gives us uh, a chance to to plan for the future. But either way, uh, we hope you'll call right now because WBI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on this show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. I hope you can join us again on Monday when I'll talk with Peter S. Goodman about his book, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. Have a great weekend.